The Knot is where you'll find vendors for every wedding. Floral to fawn over. Cakes you almost don't want to cut. Oh, it looks so good. DJs to drop it to. Venues worthy of your grid. Photographers that make every hour golden hour. Really, vendors for any vibe. With the help of fresh reviews and a few useful filters, you can find your vendors faster than you can say, I do. The Knot Vendor Marketplace. Find vendors for every wedding at thenot.com slash audio. Teaching isn't what we do, it's who we are. That is the essence of teaching. And it's very difficult when who you are is constantly under attack, which has been happening lately because it's who you are as a person. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. Hi guys. Sharon and I wanted to try something a little bit different. As you know, we talked to folks from all different backgrounds and experiences, but one group we hadn't really spoken with were teachers. And mom, I'm really sorry I didn't call you for this one. So as you know, schools are reopening all around the country, and there's been a lot of noise in the air. But the actual educators going through this are being drowned out. You might argue that they're in the minority right now. So we tapped into our network to find a few who'd be willing to talk and had a quick panel over Zoom last week. While there may be some issues with the audio quality of this episode, I'd really encourage you to stick around till the end of this one. And if you're a teacher or no one who might want to share their story with us, please reach out. So let's jump in with our teacher friends, Stacia, Chris, and Alice. It goes without saying that we're living through interesting times. One minority group that we could all do more to hear from right now is teachers, especially in the midst of COVID-19 and the concerns and controversy as many of our schools are reopening. So we assembled a panel of teachers and administrators alike from different parts of the country and different types of schools, and we have them here today. Hey, guys. Welcome to Modern Minorities. Hey. Hello. Hi. 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 <laughs> This is going to just be fun and awkward as we do this. <laughs> so most of us have only met one or two of each other before. So I'd love to have each of you kind of quickly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're working, what you're doing right now. So Chris. Okay. My name is Chris Finn. I'm an educator now entering my 25th year of education. Whoa. Yes. And I currently serve as a consultant for an education consulting company. I have served as a classroom teacher. I have been a dean of students. Once upon a time, I was a headmaster of school culture and climate, very schmancy title. I was then a school principal for many years, and now I've been serving as a consultant. I just celebrated my fifth year anniversary with this company. So a lifelong educator. And Alice, how about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I am currently a part-time educator. I work at the after-school teacher and substitute teachers in New York, and I've been doing this for about two and a half years, roughly. But I've also worked with children, volunteered and tutored elementary 
grade students. My other part-time is uh, acting as a consultant that I'm trying to transition out of my career of fashion that I've been working in for the past 17 years of my life in New York so far. So yeah. And Stacia, what about yourself? I'm a high school Spanish teacher currently. I uh, do work for public schools here in Michigan and I have been a teacher for 12 years actually. So three different districts, five different schools, and currently I'm teaching Spanish, but I used to teach English and Spanish. So kind of been all over the place in Michigan here, <laughs> Metro Detroit. So, yeah. so it's a good range of East Coast, Midwest, and kind of different levels and experiences with teaching. So I want to work backwards. We'll start with you, Stacia. Why do you want to become a teacher? You know what? I didn't want to become a teacher. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. So that's actually interesting. I think I'm pretty easily approachable, pretty open personality. And all through high school, everybody always told me I should be a teacher, particularly, you know, my family. So, of course, I didn't want to be one because I was that rebel who couldn't do what people told her she should be doing. Right. And then after college, I worked in advertising and I had always been a lifeguard and along with lifeguarding would be teaching swim lessons. Hmm. And I found as my early twenties that I really missed that. I missed teaching kids things. And I love, I missed seeing that like look on their face when they got it and how excited when they would like learn something. And so at the age of 25, my grandpa actually was very influential in, in convincing me to become a teacher. I was kind of knew it was my calling. So I went back to school and, you know, ended up getting a second degree in my teaching certificate and I do not regret it for a second. It's, it's really the best career out there in my opinion. So I, going from never wanting to be a teacher to now you would have to like drag me out of my classroom with like my nails leaving marks on the floor. So it's definitely been a 180 from uh, how I started. What about yourself, Chris? What was the driver? Similarly, I did not want to be a teacher either. You were a lifeguard. Uh, okay. Right. <laughs> not a lifeguard, but uh, I, I was, uh, my bachelor's is in social work and I left college and got a social work position. And I found that at the tender age of 22, 23, I was not really built for it. I worked at an agency called uh, Pius 12 Youth and Family Services in the South Bronx. And my first job was reuniting formerly drug addicted mothers with their children. And I worked there for two years and I could write probably 11 movies about what I saw in those two years. And as a young man, I didn't have the wherewithal to turn it off. They would say, when you go home, you have to turn it off. You have to Mm -hmm. leave all of this at work. And I didn't have it. And also very much like Stacia, though, I started to substitute teach. And when I saw those light bulbs pop on in kids' heads, and I saw this immediate progress, academic, social, emotional progress, I was really drawn to it. And then also similarly, now you couldn't drag me away, right? I fell in love with it. And that was 24, 25 years ago. So Alice, I I wanted to end this question with you because you're in the middle of, it sounds like the same story. You're leaving a career and you're you're running headlong into education. Why? (laughs) So yeah, so I never dreamt or thought I would be in this position of choosing, I think I want to be a teacher or can be a teacher. I grew up in a household of educators without realizing Mm -hmm. that was probably my personal reason with not wanting to be a teacher. I'm very now thankful as an adult, but I thought I was going to come to New York and do something different than what I was given and provided by my family that I'm still so thankful for. My first grade teacher growing up and out in Michigan, because I was identified as not 
being a majority. And so they thought I had problems with my English. Wow. Even though I was born and raised in Michigan, I probably had one pronunciation I couldn't decipher between, which was the S and the TH sound. And the story will connect me with Stacia. Stacia actually helped me and taught me <laughs> how to pronounce my S and the th. So uh, <laughs> a little connection with how me and Stacia know each other. She was actually a teacher when I was in first grade. Me wanting to become a teacher really just was people telling me left and right without me even really listening. But as I was exploring my career in fashion, people could see that I wasn't exactly 100% satisfied. You know, there was always, it's very cutthroat. It is not nice and it is not glamorous. If you've seen Devil Wears Prada, that is our life. And then now yeah. put yourself in a minority where I didn't go to fashion school, but was very good at drawing and good in textiles. I knew that I was skilled and I started building the confidence in fashion. The teaching, working with children all the time, was where I didn't feel confident since I wasn't educated bachelors and masters that I actually could be a teacher. And it was just like slightly a revolt of, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be poor. I can't live in New York on a teacher's salary. But as 10 year mark came through and almost heading into 15 years of being in New York, I realized I'm not happy doing my career in fashion. You know, I'm tired and exhausted of climbing up the ladder. And I started seeing myself volunteering more with children. And that just kept resonating. And my coworker had noticed that one day we took half a day off to go volunteer with one of the city programs. We came back and she's like, Alice, you look so happy. You love working with children. You should consider teaching. And I said, how? <laughs> I had to go back to school and pay for it and pay New York rent. So I hesitated, but the last three years, it just kept resonating and then finding out and getting the push from friends and encouragement. So I think it really was a confidence and me substitute teaching like Chris, I think you have to try it out. Um, so I got my toes in the water and now I want more of it. And so I, I'm in the middle of trying to transition from part-time teaching to full-time teaching, but how do I do it now? this year in 2020. Yeah, you picked a really interesting yeah. year to make the jump. But yeah. it sounds like from all of your stories, starting from somewhere else, it's like a calling almost that you somehow landed on. That is the case for me. And I too come from a family of educators. My father was a teacher, school principal, worked for the Board of Ed of New York. My mother taught special ed for 20 years. My sister Lisa is a principal of a charter school currently in Newark, New Jersey. My wife is a teacher. It was all around me but I wasn't running for it. And what I really love is Alice's honesty, right? Like, I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be poor. That's yeah. the next statement. Yeah. And frankly, she's right. That is right. the perception. Like, that is That's the definitely perception. the perception. And I work with schools around the country and I rarely pull up to the schools and see like the Lamborghinis and Rolls <laughs> right? It's, it's a lot of Toyota Tercels and Nissan Sentras. But I agree that what I find most often is that people who are teaching currently and who are really skilled at it have followed it because of a calling. 
because mm-hmm. they were drawn to it either by their experiences in the classroom or their you know something drew them to it. it you know i haven't met many people who like i was born to be a teacher oftentimes in my experience i have found the opposite that they they're called to it yeah yeah it's something that I say too. Teaching isn't what we do; it's who we are, and yeah. that is the essence of teaching. And it's very, very difficult when who you are is constantly under attack, which has been happening lately. Because it is, it's who you are as a person. When I started dating my husband, <laughs> you, have to, you have to tell people when you start dating them, you know, like, hey, just you know, I'm a teacher. And if they don't know what that means, they learn very, very quickly what it actually means. It means you're not leaving work at work. You are thinking about your students. You're thinking about your lessons. You're, yeah, you have summers off, but you don't really have summers off. You're still emailing students. They're asking you for letters of recommendation and for being an employee. Well, I teach high school, so obviously, you know, my students mm-hmm. are looking for jobs, but that's what it is. It, it never leaves you. you, you never, it, it's you an identity break. thing. Both my parents are teachers. My mom was an elementary and then middle school teacher. And it's funny, she was like a celebrity in town. You'd be at the Walmart or the Winn-Dixie and all of these people knew her. And yeah. after we got interrupted grocery shopping, I'd be like, mom, who is that? She's like, I, I kind of vaguely remember because <laughs> my mom was like, so I've been going through my own career stuff. And my mom is like, well, Raman, you should teach. And I'm like, no, mom. And it's not, <laughs> it's not the poor thing. Because it, beyond being a calling, Chris, you said something about skill. There is an art and a science to what you guys do. I can't do it. Yeah. I know I'm terrible at it. If anyone yeah. asks me to program a VCR or show them how to do it, I can't control it. I my- totally agree. I, I teach digital marketing to adults. And I remember, and I've been working in marketing, you know, my whole career. And I have to tell you guys, the first semester that I was teaching, the survey feedback that came back was so awful, so <laughs> awful that the, so I teach at General Assembly. I'm just going to like totally be honest. General Assembly had to assign me a coach to teach me how to teach. I just felt so bad about myself. And they were like, no, like you're a great marketer. You're just not a trained teacher. So like for me to stand up there and try to explain concepts, I thought I was doing a great job. No one understood what the hell I was talking about. (laughs) Knowing something and knowing how to teach are two different things. Well, there you said it because that's a common misconception. Again, working with all these different schools, a great high school principal might come across like a biology professor with their doctorate who's retired, has written five books and they say, oh, they'd be a perfect teacher. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, that is not always the case. Right. Many times I've seen teachers speaking and teaching at this ethereal level, right? right. And the kids are like, what is physics? Like, could yeah. you just give us the definition? <laughs> and then there's the culturally responsive piece. There's making the curriculum engaging and exciting, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. I have not yet met the student who just walks up like, Good morning. I am fully self-actualized. <laughs> I realize that education is the key to my future. Right, and therefore, right. I will behave and be respectful. It's like you have to make it so juicy, so exciting that it's engaging. And sometimes physics, marketing, biology is not the easiest thing to make so tasty for kids to eat. Absolutely. Yeah. So we brought you guys together because we're in a very interesting time and you sort of alluded to it. Alice, you joke of all the times to be interested in teaching like 2020 as the year. So I want to talk to you guys a little bit about how each of your schools are handling reopening and decisions that they're making as well as anything that you're experiencing. So Alice, let's start with you since you are 
again, <laughs> choosing to dive into teaching at this very unique time. How is your school handling things? So far since last week, which we were going back to prep and clean out lockers and do everything where we had to just abort <laughs> abort the school and just go hide out for however long. So far, I, I feel more confident since the emails that we were getting as monthly updates since June, since school's closed. And I'm going to be very honest, I was very anxious and really worried about my return as not even full-time, I'm part-time. So I'm not even there for a full day. It was a combination really just also in New York, it's just tough. We don't all have cars and we can't all walk or take a bus or ride the bike to school. Most of the time if we live in New York, we're coming from all sorts of different areas and the way you get to work usually is public transit. So that was a piece of it. And our school honestly was able to offer carpools or try to figure that out with teachers that did have cars and able to find parking and pay extra for parking. In New York, we actually have to pay for parking spots, not like Midwest or other parts (laughs) where you have lots of free parking. So yeah, I'm confident now seeing there last week, I went in, we have a lot of the supplies. Meaning like masks and and sanitizer? Is that what you're talking about? Oh yes, PP. But beyond that, for me, I know what's going on overseas and how they were able to open schools safely and Mm -hmm. reduce mountain countries like Taiwan. Germany was able to do it. I believe Denmark. There's a few other countries that are able to do it and continuously into the summer and no sickness spreading. So it's about the PPE and it's just like businesses and offices opening up in phase one, phase two, phase three. So yeah, having masks, having hand sanitizer, you have the staff levels to disinfect throughout the day, not just overnight once everyone's got it all dirty. If it's dirty and there's spread going on, it's spreading. So, and they were doing that actually earlier on this year in February and March as we were getting more updates, but not consistent as a national way of handling things. So I do feel like there is an advantage that we are private and we had additional resources taking the time to really focus on the safety and health concerns for our staff and children coming to school and that we're opening school just because we need it. So seeing PPE, seeing the mask, the cleaning, the sanitizing, making sure your rooms are well ventilated and there's enough space and distance between the desk. I think that's the biggest thing that parents and just staff themselves are worried about because you can't maintain six feet distance in a public school, in a public classroom that holds at least 20 to 35 in New York, Mm -hmm. 35, they're packed in like sardines, but we have floor plans. Everything was honestly prepared to a T. We also have air purifiers just in case there's no ventilation coming throughout the window. But yeah, I, I feel confident. It's frustrating on my part, just because I'm not technically committed to hours yet because we're guinea pigging it right now. So we opened today just for a half day with the younger children and seeing the the reduced amount of like people on transit. I've been communicating back. Hey, like I'm coming in from Queens. It's a little uncomfortable (laughs) on the subway, on the seven train. So I think we may need to consider that because it's not just the teachers, but it's a parent taking the child to school. And if they have to get into that stuffed car and train, it might not be they're sick or at school, 
we're getting sick during our transportation, right. getting to school. Right. So the decision of between hybrid and person remote has been going back and forth. But I will say I'm comfortable to do it online on Zoom, doing classrooms, sure, sure. because we started doing that during the shutdown period. So we were able to work out the kinks. And when they hired additional IT staff to help out with parents having issues or staff members. So I think we're going one step further than with what I'm hearing from some of the other challenges of friends who are working in DOE. Daisha, you're in a public school in the Midwest. Very different scenario. You guys have parking, I hear. Um, <laughs> no, but have you opened yet? When is opening happening? Well, like I was going to say, not only do we have parking, you, we're in the Motor City here. I mean, everybody has a car here. Right. So, so we opened yesterday. And most of the schools in this area and in the state of Michigan decided to do what we call a remote start. This is different than a virtual. Virtual means that they are virtual for the whole year. All of their classes, they had to sign up through an academy and all of their classes are now virtual. Some teachers from my school were able to teach the virtual academy, but some weren't. If you chose to do that, your schedule is awful. You're teaching five different preps. And, and for those of you who are listening and don't know what a prep is, it's teacher talk for the different class you teach. <laughs> so for example, a prep could be, oh, I teach Spanish two and Spanish three and Spanish four. That's three different preps, meaning I have to prepare myself for three different classes throughout the day. Yeah. So that's a uh, virtual versus remote. So it, it was very stressful over the summer because Michigan hit a sweet spot back in June. And that's actually when I had my son. I had my first child in the middle of a pandemic in, in June as school was ending anyways. Wow. And we were barely at a hundred cases a day. I mean, we were just really in this sweet spot and then parents started getting confident. They wanted their kids to be back in person, but then our cases started rising. If you're familiar with Michigan culture, there's something called up North. And if you go up North, you are on a lake, you're on a boat, you're social and it spread like crazy hmm. over the summer. So as August was getting closer and closer, more and more teachers started to get nervous about going back to work justifiably. I myself right. am high risk because of the complications from carrying my son. I have a three month old at home. It's not just me. It's, it's people who go to work and they have people at home that they're coming home to. Um, right. Over the summer, the seniors who graduated last year and all of Metro Detroit, a lot of the seniors decided to hold their own proms. They decided to hold their own graduation ceremonies and it started to spread. It started yeah. to spread with younger people. So of course this makes teachers nervous. This makes parents nervous, but some parents aren't nervous and justifiably so too. They're looking at their kids and their kids are suffering. They, they want to be in school with their friends. They are seniors. They're missing out. So it's it's difficult to decide what to do. So our district hemmed and hawed and finally presented to the board in August that we should start remote. It did not go over well. Parents were not happy about the idea of starting remote simply because the cases aren't that high in Michigan. They are, but they're not. It's this idea of it's only 1% of the population, but 1% of the population is, is infecting a lot of people. So it, it was very frustrating listening to these board meetings over the summer. I actually did end up calling in and, and speaking on behalf of myself. We are six weeks remote. So starting now, we are remote teaching, meaning teachers report to school to teach from their classrooms, but I am teaching to a computer all day and my students log in from home, right. which is different than virtual. Virtual is they have a virtual class that they are going to be there all year. The right. remote teaching is I'm teaching remotely. Like I'm, you know, teaching you and you're on the computer and you're listening. And I use all these different apps in Google Classroom. And 
it's supposed to be for the first six weeks, and then we will phase students into a hybrid model, meaning, actually, I don't know what it means. I have classes, I have students. On Monday and Tuesday, I meet with a few hours. Half of them are in school, and I'm teaching them in person, but some of them are still on the computer, so I'm still at home, so I'm teaching. Half of them will be sitting in class, and the other half will be sitting at home, and I'm teaching to both. Then on Wednesdays, everybody's at home, and we're not the only, many, many districts around my area are doing this. Obviously, everybody's like, what's the point? Chris, you consult with teachers in schools around the country, Stacia's already kind of indicating that there's no one plan. And I'm not saying there has to be, but is it chaos or is it just a bunch of experiments happening and everyone's trying to figure out at once? What, what differences are you seeing across the board? I'd say there's a mixture. And it's interesting because so much of what both of them shared resonated with me. I have the blessing or the opportunity to work with schools around the country. So I have schools in Kentucky, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Virginia, all over New York, Connecticut, Ohio, maybe some I'm not mentioning right now, but it was interesting watching the response from the leadership around the country when the schools were closing down, right? I really want to commend some of the leaders who were kind of more maverick. Many of us were waiting to be told what to do. And with lack of information and lack of guidance, there was a lot of chaos. But I really salute some of the leaders I work with around the country who had the forethought to just do what they felt was best for their staff and their kids versus what they were being told or not being told, right? New York left a lot of people in this kind of quagmire and it would change every other day, right? So I think, A, one thing I wanna note is that the leadership in these chaotic times is really powerful because I know principals that literally went against the grain and just did what they thought was safe for their school district, what have you. In the shutdown. in the shutdown. And then as we kept moving through the shutdown, again, what Stacia said resonated with me because I'd be on the Zoom here. I live in New Jersey and we were close to New York, the epicenter of the cases. And I would be on a Zoom here in my basement, kind of dark, kind of depressed, kind of looking at the numbers of people dying. And I'd be on the phone or in the Zoom with a principal from Virginia and they got their sunglasses on driving to the beach. And it felt like we were in three or four different planets, right? I was struck by that throughout the pandemic is how some areas were so greatly affected and saw death like coming closer and closer. I remember just hearing about deaths and then hearing a New York City school principal had passed away and then it was a teacher and then it's like a cousin and it's a friend. It felt like it was creeping so close to me where some places people live, they didn't experience that level of death. So it didn't impact them as greatly. So where you are, I think had another impact. But right now to your question, It's a mixture of chaos and experiment, right? And frankly, Mm -hmm. we would have to put it all in the bucket of experiment because this is all unproven waters. But to Alice's point, she's 100% correct. New York, the most populated place, no way to social distance. One year in the Bronx, I had 36 kids. This is early teaching. And I was told I could file a grievance if I had more than 32. But as a young teacher, I was afraid to say anything. So I'm wondering how many classes have this many students in it. To Stacia's point, many places I work with, like this morning, I facilitated a professional learning session with teachers in Kentucky, and they are in the building, but their students are not. So they're delivering very much like Stacia shared. They're delivering to their computer screen, and their kids are remote, and they have decided that they're going to revisit their in-school, out-school in December. 
-hmm. My wife is a public school teacher, teaches right in the Bronx in New York City DOE. She's a technology teacher. She was able to fill out the document to stay home. She got the medical accommodation because she has really severe asthma. So she's working from home. She seems okay with it, safer, because it's sad. But she complained about how dirty her school was like prior to COVID, right? Like right. years, years leading up to this, she would always talk about my school is so disgusting, the custodial staff, this, that, and the other. So when COVID hit, she has literally zero faith that her school is going to be cleaned appropriately. And then on top of that, she works in a building where she's in a computer lab on the third floor. The windows are sealed shut. There's mm -hmm. no ventilation. They're like right. nailed, cemented, whatever, sealed yeah. shut. They have heating through their radiator system, super antiquated, like building probably built in like 1920. And, and she has air conditioning in her room because she's a technology teacher and they have the Mac lab, but there are many classes that do not. So no windows, heat through ventilators. That's right. It's like an oven, like it's cooking the germs in the yeah. building, right? It's keeping them warm and fuzzy throughout this season. So yes, it is an experiment. <laughs> I'm glad Alice feels confident because I have not heard many teachers who feel as confident as she has. And I don't want to throw any shade on her game, like bless you. But so many teachers are feeling like I'm scared to death. Those with young children at home, like Stacia, those with elderly family members at home. So each district is treating it a little bit differently. My home district here in Englewood has decided to go fully virtual to the earlier point. They too are going to revisit right before what they're calling the holiday break, which is like the Christmas break, they're going to make another decision. But district by district, state by state, they're making these decisions. And I think we would have to say it is an experiment because we don't know what the best method is. And we're hoping that we don't get these spikes in cases. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind me jumping in really quick, just to add on to Chris. So the confident really is specifically my school. And so I know that's a one-off from if I was hired by DOE, if I was working in any of the other boroughs, especially in high-need school areas, I'd be scared to death. And that was part of my consideration of leaving New York to go back to Michigan, where you're not dealing with the stress and worry of how to be a teacher and put yourself in a stressful environment of how to safely get to school. Yeah, so for you, me, it's for really you about, even traveling back and forth to school. Yes. But that private school or whatever institution you're a part of, I have a, a close colleague who is a principal of a charter school in Jersey City, New Jersey. And being the principal of a charter, you can move a little bit more autonomously, right? You don't have to follow the full DOE guidelines. So this summer, probably a month ago, he walked me through his plan to return to school. And because he's the principal of a K-8 to and had some funding and had autonomy, he was able to do some really powerful things. Like immediately all of his fifth grade through eighth grade kids are being fully virtual, right? So he made that decision. So now he only has his pre-K through four coming into the building. He bought these big temperature screeners, right? Mm -hmm. So his kids, when they walk into the building, they're walking through these temperature screeners. Then if there's a blue Flip on the temperature screen radar, you get pulled to a second session where they triage you and check your temperature again, right? And then based on what your temperature is there, there's a protocol of decisions to be made. He has five grades ultimately with pre-K through four, and he's had to create 
five different entrances and egresses from his school. So each grade is coming in a different door, walking past this incredibly expensive scanner and then being scanned again. And I asked him to write his plan up and it had to be passed by his board. And he sent me a version. And I've been sharing that with principals because in my experience, it's been the most comprehensive plan to return. But public school principals are telling me like, yeah, where do you want me to to sell my kidney to get money? For yeah, I was about to yeah. say, it just doesn't right? seem it's realistic. It's not going to happen. Like yeah. Newark, Newark has 66 schools. They're not buying that for every school for five different entrances, right? The blessing like you, Alice, is that it's more of a private institution. It's a charter. So in essence, it's really still public, right. but they can elicit and collect funding to support yep. them. And he made this really detailed, comprehensive plan. One thing I think this is exacerbating is, and again, it's not to throw shade on anyone. If you are fortunate to be in that situation, good on you as a teacher, as a student, as a parent, but it is exacerbating the haves and the haves nots in the society. Even before schools reopened, where we live in the suburbs of Manhattan, effectively, you were having these bubble schools. Oh, we're going to hire a tutor in Mm -hmm. three families. They call them pods, right? And that's great if you can afford to do it. I was being auditioned and interviewed to do a pod, but it really went back to transportation. But it, but it doesn't scale. But, Again, these solutions right. don't scale. And right. I want to touch on that too, because what's interesting for me, I grew up in the New York City public school. So I went to public school K through 12, my whole elementary and high school experience. And I think about what would have happened if when I was growing up, I had to experience this. We had one computer in my home. And we didn't have that computer until I was actually pretty much older, right? So from a socio- Yeah, but Sharon, we're old. We're old. We are old. That's true. So maybe not everybody had a computer back then anyway. But my point is, I think about my own kids. And when this happened, where there were enough devices in our own family to go around, my kids go to a a private school. So we are, I I hate to think of us as the haves, but I guess in this conversation, right? They're they're in independent school. We are paying a tuition. We we have a device for every child. And in fact, in their new school, this school has provided iPads for every child. So the the school itself has enough funding to provide devices to the kids. I wonder about the public school students and I wonder about how this affects students. So Stacia, you're teaching in the public school system. I know it's only been one day in, but how is this impacting the students and their own experience learning and connecting with each other? What disparities are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we did do remote teaching in the spring as well. So when we okay. uh, were sheltering, we also attempted it, but that was survival mode. That was literally students had to check in with us once a week and they got credit for the class. And so now it's different. Our school and our area, I would say within the school, there are the haves and the have not. So it's not just district by district right. within my own building. It is so divided between mm-hmm. you have students showing up in their brand new Jeeps. And you were talking about the cars that teachers drive earlier, (laughs) teachers versus (laughs) students. You can tell the teacher parking lot. And then there are students who have nothing. And I am starting to see the disparity amongst that. And you realize, you know, as you're going through teaching school, they talk about SES, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's socioeconomic status and the differences between that. And you're talking about private school versus public school. But even within public school, you start seeing it and you start realizing just how much that really does affect how students are going to learn 
not only are my students with higher SES, do they have, you know, what Sharon was talking about, they have the each personal computers and they have the internet, the bandwidth, their parents are home. Their parents have the white collar jobs that they can right. sit there. And as I was teaching today, I gave my students this assignment to try to figure out how to use this new extension. I had a handful of parents literally over their kids' shoulders helping them with it. And then I had other students who obviously their parents are gone. It's not always obviously parents work and they do have high SES or low SES. It's not like the defining moment, but I'm looking at this like those kids already have a heads up because their parent is right there to help them as opposed to the other ones whose parents are working or maybe they only live with one parent or another because for whatever reason. And it's just so obvious that at the end of this year, it's going to be even more divided. It makes me sad. It's this idea of privilege. So much in the past few months has, I think those of us with privilege, and I raised my hand as one of them, you acknowledge this has exposed the privilege that some of us have. Yeah. And like, I'm going to do everything I can. I will be over my daughter's computer installing that extension if I can. And, but I have that optionality and there's a lot of don't. And, and so I want to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit. I mean, you guys are the voices of educators right now, at least on this podcast, I don't know if we're handling it well as a society, as the value. We always say, oh, we want to fund schools. No one's against the pulling of the funding of teachers, but there's kind of show, don't tell. What do our leaders, either at the local, at the national level, need to be hearing? What do they need to be thinking about? You've got a magic wand or a magic microphone in this case. I don't know, Alice, what do you think they should be doing? Honestly, I think the leadership needs to understand what the real meaning of together means. Together, we have to stand united and be consistent and do the same thing throughout our country. Doesn't matter if it's public or private, if you're in a higher economic status or lower. And it, it's really, really telling of what our nation has been going through even before COVID. We have not been united with how teachers are treated or how much we get paid consistent with the national average of color, gender, age, years of experience. Leadership needs to not put the pressure on states and districts and just leave it, figure it out. We need school to start. Everyone wants school to start. Everyone wants to go back and have their life again. Everyone wants to go back to work. Everyone wants to live the normalcy that we had, but we have to do it together. And it's very telling with the first message a lot of us heard that was confusing, which was don't wear mask or wear it. But if you're going to make that message, do it at the same time, not just because New York with the epicenter. We have to do it together. Shelter in only works if we do it all at the same time. The reason why it didn't work was because the ones who sheltered in stayed in, but the ones who chose not to listen that want to go feel normal or socialize or didn't understand doctor's orders is that they were still going out and spreading. So if our schools were consistent with providing the technology to all the families and all the students and all the teachers that need it, because there are even teachers who don't have laptops or the tools to use to succeed with a successful year of teaching. So our children aren't a year behind 
or maybe even now two years if it takes longer. We need the funding, not just private versus public, but together. I think the nation, the country needs to know that education is important and you can't just leave it to the survival of the fittest. I guess it's easy to say together, Mm -hmm. but those who have are going, look, if you have an advantage, you're going to use it. So together is about how do you pull up the rest? So Chris, you can pick up the phone right now. What do you want to say? I want to say that the COVID experience in this country has further exacerbated things. I feel like it revealed a great deal of things. When we hit this high level of unemployment, the country decided we would for a moment snap our fingers and have this trillion dollars and hand out this money and what have you. And I thought, hmm, where was that when Flint, Michigan doesn't have clean water, right? It's like we decide what we put as a high priority and we decide what isn't. And clearly here, in many cases, education has not been deemed the highest of priorities. It's get them back to school by any means so that the adults can get back to work and we can have some sense of normalcy. That trillion dollar bailout for people who were unemployed was A, a relief for many of the Americans, but for me, it was a wake-up call. Well, you guys really can just print the money when you want to save an industry, right? I keep going back to Flint, but what happened when generations of people are being poisoned and dying literally by the water, and Flint, Michigan might have cost like $27 million where you're willing to have a trillion for this, right? So I'm kind of seconding Alice's piece on together, but the thing I think we struggle with in America is this, this duality between this communal sense of American pride and togetherness and this other like rugged individualism, right? Like I'm an individual, I'm not one of the bigger community and I can be a maverick and do my own thing. We've seen throughout history that has helped people by going against the grain. I gave some roses to some mavericks about 20 minutes ago who were doing something different. But I would tell political leaders, put education at the top of the priority, put the lives of teachers and children at the top of priority. And it's not something that immediately turns around into just profit for you, but for the health and welfare of the country, we need the resources, the PPE, the time to get these things right so we don't see more death. Yeah, it feels like we knew shutting everything down was actually easier then reopening it back up. And from the moment we were shutting down in the spring, we shaved off some time of the year. We're going into summer break, but there was no plan. And I'm not speaking to individual teachers or school districts, but it was, where was the planning? We always knew August, September was coming. So Stacia, kind of last word on this one topic. What do your leaders need to be hearing, be it in your state, at the federal level? What do they need to be hearing from the Spanish teacher in Detroit? I mean, I don't think it's actually anything new. I think it's an age-old respect. We need to respect our educators, and we don't. Alice compared a lot. She said, you know, they're overseas, and all these other countries are reopening schools safely. And the one thing that most other countries will tell you that they have is respect for educators. They're not shoving 40 students in a classroom. They are putting 15 to 20 students in a classroom, which should always be how it is, not only for our physical health during flu season and COVID, but for our students' mental health as well. I would say that with that respect, for a profession comes the funding, comes understanding of what we're going through. 
I think the difference between education and every other profession in the world is that everybody has gone through school. So everybody thinks they know what it's like to be a teacher as opposed to, I don't know what it's like to be a marketing professional. I don't know what it's like to be in fashion. I don't know what it's like to be in anything else because I've never been through it, but everybody has been a student at one time or another. And unfortunately, the respect is just missing all around. And I don't think it's anything new that came about because of COVID. I think it's just, as um, Chris said, COVID has exacerbated a lot of things. And I think that's the number one thing that it has, has shown. So we're going to kind of close this loop a little bit and talk about what's to come. I'd like to go around and hear from each of you what keeps you up at night, as well as what are you optimistic about? So you can choose to start with the, the positive or the negative, but I'd like to hear from each of you. So Chris, why don't we start with you? What I'm positive about or what I'm thinking is going to happen is that we mentioned that this is a calling, right? And I do believe that the spirit of educators around this country, we are going to mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, like band together and do what's best for our children. I see it happening. I see in this professional development session I led this morning, I see teachers who are anxious to support their children and to do what's best for them, regardless of what's around them. What keeps me up at night is a little different, so forgive me for a minute, but what I also feel is, along with the COVID-19 experience, we also witnessed horrific racial uprising and racial injustice. And what I found so interesting is after the killing of George Floyd, my calendar started filling up with schools asking me to do equity training, anti-racism, culturally responsive. But what's so interesting is now that school has started and we're being distracted by the return to school and by COVID, that all of that fervor to talk about race and injustice is being kicked down the road, right? And and it's hard for me to to be Mm -hmm. mad because it's like the perfect storm. Right now, I speak to principals and I'm like, so what do you want to do about equity? And they're like, listen, my school's opening. I got kids coming, COVID-19. So my fear, if you will, the thing that keeps me up at night is that we're going to continue just this cyclical version of death of Black bodies by police. Because even now, when we have the most energy, the most focused Mm -hmm. racial protest, we're losing steam, unfortunately, because of this return to school and because of the COVID experience. Thank you. Alice, what keeps you up at night and what are you most looking forward to? What keeps me up at night is when will this all be over? And when can I enjoy (laughs) my happy place physically? I've also just realized, am I going to be able to see my friends and family again? and not, it's going to be years now. And have I said everything that I want to say to everyone I love and care about and making sure that they're okay? And will America be great? Being a proud American (laughs) is that everything like adding on to Chris about the inequalities with race, we're talking about SES. There is a lot of things about America that we all are proud Americans And we feel great about our independence and freedom. But what keeps me up at night is I don't feel very free right now at this moment because of how our country has reacted. I'm a little embarrassed, (laughs) to be honest. We have the knowledge around the world to participate on getting better. And we're not. We're number one 
with something that we do not want to be number one in. And we need to put that pride away and just work together. So what keeps me up at night is that I'm living in my country that I want to stay in, but I don't feel free and I'm scared. And so I am looking forward to when we can feel free and healthy and rejoin our community in the safe way. And we will look back at this and feel like we survived this together. Stacia, you get the um, last word. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> what keeps me up at night, coming back to be a teacher being who I am, uh, reaching my students this year, I'm very concerned that I'm teaching to an empty classroom on a computer screen. And one of the things that drives me as a teacher is being able to develop a good rapport with my students and to develop those relationships. And so if a student is hurting, I can't tell because they're shutting their camera off and I'm teaching yeah. to an initial. That really does keep me up at night. That is something mm. I'm exhausted today. It is day two of teaching because I had so much focus to put out all this energy and I got I got nothing back. You know, I got a bunch of computer screens back. So that absolutely keeps me up at night. But looking forward, I shared I'm a new mom. And I look at my son and I look at my, I'm going to get a little emotional, sorry. And I look at my students that I teach and I look forward to seeing what they're going to do with their lives and how they're going to, they are going to make this better because every generation does. Every generation improves and they are living through something that they're going to look back and they're going to have an appreciation that they never had before. And I look at my son and he's going to grow up his whole life hearing that he was born during a, a pandemic <laughs> and what is he going to do with that? And I'm very much looking forward to that because I think it's going to be pretty amazing. So great. great. Well, guys, we know a lot of you have to get back to work. And <laughs> it means a lot that you would step out of the crazy and share your experience. Scott Galloway said that education is a deck of cards that COVID has thrown in the air. And that speaks to, it was already kind of a delicate balance that you guys were surviving and honestly thriving because it's your calling. And I think it means a lot for our audience to, to really understand more about what you guys are going through. So let's stay in touch and best of luck, stay strong and stay safe out there. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good luck everybody with your school year for kids and teachers alike. And that's our show. Like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. This isn't, I believe, a question of right versus left. It's right versus wrong. And this is so blatantly obvious that I feel a duty to express myself. This is just wrong, right? I mean, the level of discrimination and the antipathy with which we've largely non-responded to this growing problem. There's been these touch points recently that have exacerbated it that I think it warrants speaking out and, and I will be speaking out. Like this is not an issue you can just sweep under the table or just support quietly. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Lucky Land. 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.